The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice and Rev. Dan Beckett. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity FM Radio. I am Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Rev. Dan Beckett. And together we discuss ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth and your recovery journey. And so as today's show is an interactive discussion, if you're listening live, you can call in with your comments and questions. The number is 816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. So today's show is all about love. Love is a many-splendored thing, says one old song, and another song says, all you need is love. Recovery literature says, love and tolerance is our code. And then, of course, we hear just in the general vernacular, it's love that makes the world go round. And so there are many definitions of love, it seems, as many as there are people defining it. But many of us in recovery can overemphasize love to the point of codependence. Codependence means that we define ourselves and whether we're okay or not in relationship to someone else's situation or emotions. It's kind of like a compulsive empathy that we can't control, just like we can't control a physical addiction. So our challenge is to become more independent and balanced emotionally in our lives. But how exactly does this thing called love fit in? Now, I get the tolerance piece when we talk about love and tolerance is our code because, A, some of us were barely tolerable when we were out there. And and also, certainly, we need to learn to tolerate others as we, quote, live and let live. But as the song goes, when we talk about independent and balanced emotionally, what does love have to do with it? Well, it's kind of well known that uh, when somebody says they've fallen in love, they are not well balanced. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, it it is. What does love have to do with it? And so I think the first thing to do is to understand exactly what we're talking about when we say love. Because, as I mentioned, there are as many definitions as there are people. And it's something that everybody wants. And we spend a large amount of time, money, and energy to put ourselves in a position to receive. And yet, nobody pretty much nobody thinks that they have enough of it, you know, and and we all all want to feel loved. So what do we really mean by that word? You know, the ancient Greeks had a number of different names for love because they recognized that there were different types, that they're not all the same. And, uh, you know, that 
There are, there are things like we think of the romantic love or the sexual passion and love or deep friendship or even agape that we talk about in church, you know, and so, um, and even narcissism is an unhealthy form of love. And so while they focused more on these uh, emotional aspects of love, we understand in unity that there are um, other dimensions that we're going to uh, talk about at another point in time. But this one has to do with the feeling of love, the affectional nature of love. So where do we learn about love? How do we get our belief systems about love? Well, I think for me uh, and others, I know certainly we learn them where we learned everything, you know, in our childhood. It has a lot to do with uh, my particular family situation, uh, the personalities of the other people around me. And then, of course, as we, we grow up and become teenagers and become interested in dating and whatnot, that brings a whole new dimension into it for sure. You know, I can remember being six years old and, and we moved and I lost my best friend. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that, that the connection that I felt at that time was called love, but I believe that that's what that was. You know, it was this, this attachment, this identification with, this ability to connect with another human being. And so, you know, the, the challenge for me has been that um, learning love in different family systems leaves me with a different definition than what other people may have. Um, I may think a friend behaves this way, but somebody else's definition of a friend is entirely different, uh, for example. Yeah, so it seems like our challenge is that, as with many things, we can get out of balance with love. And uh, we're calling that codependence, you know, that kind of uh, compulsive empathy, if you will, that out of balance love. And it seems like there are a lot of ways that this imbalance could show up in our lives. Uh, how have you seen an imbalance like that in your life? Well, I can think of several things, um, you know, that, that have come about because growing up in a dysfunctional environment, uh, with people doing the best they knew how, um, you know, set the stage for what I believe about love. Uh, one example, um, I heard my dad say one time with pride, well, we've been married 40 years, you know, but yet some of the behavior that I witnessed did not indicate love. That sent a mixed message to me that longevity means it's love. And that did not really fit my definition. Um, you know, I didn't really think about things like that until I got older, but I did realize that I had some fixed ideas that if somebody loves me, they behave this way or they behave that way. And if they don't meet that expectation, then that means they don't love me. And Having that kind of an idea around love really kind of um, set me up for some disappointments. I'll put it that way. You know, in other ways that this that showed up in my life is is um, I had a grandmother that um, I was very attached to. You know, loved dearly. With her, I felt unconditional love. It didn't matter what I did, where I was. Uh, I could always call her. I could always be accepted by her. Um, I always felt loved. I didn't feel judged or or any other negative type thing around that. And from her, she had an alcoholic son. He would come in late, if at all, at night. She would wait up on him. And so to me, I understood love meant 
you sacrificed yourself. You waited up on somebody. You you held dinner for them. You worried over them when they weren't worried about themselves. You know, so I realize now that I, I acquired some ideas that just didn't fit in my adult life. Yeah, and it and it sounds like the the key what I'm hearing is that that kind of conditional versus unconditional um is part of what's going on here. And I know that in in recovery, especially in early recovery, we learn and I was told that uh where there's an addict, there's a codependent. Now, of course, nothing is quite as black and white as that, but the point being that there are these kind of two types of dysfunction. So if, if I have a physical addiction to alcohol, which I do, uh, does that mean then I look around my family and I see somebody who is out of balance, um, emotionally out of balance with the way that they understand love, like you described with your grandmother, you know, waiting up for someone, taking care of someone that's not taking care of themselves. Now, you know, for where I sit now with some time in recovery, that seems like an unhealthy uh, expression of love. And uh, maybe in those cases, uh, we are compelled to um, try and bridge the gap for others, especially, of course, a loved one if, in our family. If if we have a loved one in our family that has an addiction problem, we it's very natural, I think, to really feel strongly like, what can I do to help? I want to help that person. And then if we go about that in a direct manner, that could be, well be uh, us expressing a, a codependence. Because it might be that what we need to do is is let that person fall down because that's what their actions are creating. So it, yeah, I can see it's a it's a very mixed situation, It'll be very hard to navigate, and as you describe some of those situations from your childhood, I can definitely see that uh there's that we we come out of our youth with some things to be sorted out for sure. Yeah, and I think you mentioned it's a mixed bag. I was stunned when I first learned this many years ago that one alcoholic in a family or one addict in a family can affect up to six generations. And I did not understand that. If I did not even know my great-great-grandfather was alcoholic, how could that still be affecting me? But it's through the codependency because it's through the attitudes and the belief systems that are passed down through the family, just as I mentioned, you know, three generations. My grandmother said, no, you wait up for him. You, you save dinner for him. You work about them, you pray for them, you know, all those things, which may be good in and of themselves, but then it becomes a generational pattern because that's what my mom learned, that's what I learned, that what was taught earlier, and so now I have these unhealthy ideas or behaviors that just don't function in my life any longer um, because I seem to be interfering in other people's lives. And the other thing that gets confusing about it is that some of us that have addictions, like myself, um, also have this side of the disease. That uh, the codependency piece, and so sorting out, I'm clean and sober and working my program. How come I'm still miserable? Right, be- becomes a real mixed bag sometimes. Yeah, I can see how that would be because um, I-, I believe that uh, all of us in any twelve step program, you know, we're not monoliths, right? Uh, I know that uh, I don't have just one problem. I went into it thinking I had just one challenge, but uh, inevitably, and as you just described, as I addressed that challenge of alcoholism, um, that just opened the door for opportunity to address other, you know, that maybe weren't as loud, but are are still there nonetheless. 
And I love what you said about the generational pattern because I learned um, after I got sober that uh, I learned this from my aunt, who is also a sober person, that uh, my great-grandfather was an alcoholic. I never heard that before in my whole life. I didn't know that. And um, I always felt like, because the alcoholism, you know, we say it runs in families. Well, it's pretty sparse in my family. Um, among, if I think about my parents and uh, their siblings and my siblings, it's really only in my aunt. And before that, and me, of course, and then before that, uh, in my great-grandfather, so her grandfather. So I, I always felt like, you know, my family of origin didn't really know what addiction looked like. And I think that's why it could uh, develop in me, kind of invisible to me and everyone else. I mean, how would you know uh, what it looked like if you didn't have direct experience with it? And I took that to mean, well, you know, there's just no no alcoholism in my family. Yeah, and I'm I'm picking up on what you're saying, and I think you know there's something going on there underneath the surface that, as you say, shows up in behaviors that are passed along. Um, I've seen articles recently that uh, are saying that traumatic experiences literally can get encoded in our genes and passed on to our children and their children. So I think there's definitely something to that and that these uh, both uh, uh, the addiction problems like uh, I experience and, and codependence, which I experience though not as strongly, um, there's more going on than I might know. Well, and I think there's some real predictable patterns of behavior. And I know for me, um, long before I understood anything about, about codependency, I, I acquired some behavior patterns that, um, included an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. Everything was my fault or everything I needed to fix. Um, I always had to be there for other people, no matter what. Uh, because if I didn't, I was accused of not loving them, you know, and, and of course the end result of that is that I abandoned myself, you know, I, I threw self-care to the wind, I didn't even know what it was at that point in time, uh, in order to do what needed to be done for everybody else in my family. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I see this a lot in the communities that I'm in, um, women in particular are kind of trained that way. You know, um, and particularly, well, I just think that there it's an encultural, an enculturated thing that we're trained to take care of other people first, you know, and that uh, becomes a part of who we think we are. So, you know, we, we sell ourselves out and we become sensitive to um, manipulation by guilt or shame or fear. And, you know, in the name of love, we lose ourselves. You know, we abandon ourselves, and the only type of transactions that we ha uh, interactions we have with people become transactional. You know, it's really not um, on a very deep, emotional, loving kind of level. It's it's more transactional. Yeah, I can definitely see that, and um, I'm, I'm reminded about how we all have. Uh, you know, different experiences, even those of us, say, in the same 12-step program, um, come from you know, quite varied backgrounds. But I think you're really on to a powerful truth there as you, as you speak about the, um, the types of societal pressures, that's what I'm hearing, that are, um, I don't know if unique, but sort of strongly uh, showing up 
uh, in the way that women encounter the world differently than men encounter the world. And of course, having never been a woman, I don't have any direct experience with it. Although, um, if I am quiet and pay attention, I feel like I can begin to see it, you know, maybe the tip of the iceberg. Um, I know I could never truly appreciate that experience not having had it myself, just like um, I know that uh, folks who are not alcoholic can't never really get what uh, you and I have been through, but that's okay. Um, but I think you're really on to something deep and powerful there, and there is societal pressure to show up this way or that way. And in women, I can definitely see how there's more pressure to show up as a caregiver, you know, as a supporter, as a selfless kind of person putting others ahead. Yeah, and as you point out that, you know, it the enculturation goes both ways because it affects the men as well. Yeah. Um, I, I know men that have lost themselves trying to be the hero and the, the take care of everybody and to do what is expected and to be the breadwinner and, you know, all of those things that um, maybe our society expects and yet lose touch with the inner self. And, you know, so we, we no matter what gender we are, fall into people-pleasing and, and approval-seeking and potentially attention-seeking, um, all kinds of ways to try to get our needs met because this need to be connected on a human level is a very real thing. I mean, it's a part of our makeup. It's what we're born with. Yeah, I can see that, uh, that you're pointing out about men because uh, we could quite easily become uh, you know, compulsive about uh, defining ourselves in terms of what is our job, how important do we feel like we are in relation to others, how much money do we make, how big is our house, and all of that kind of stuff. That's, I think, uh, as you say, uh, a common way that we men can get out of touch with who we are and get out of balance uh, with ourselves and even develop uh, what, you know, what we could call a compulsive behavior or addictive behavior towards uh, accomplishment because there are definitely cultural pressures for that. But let's, let's move into the solution. I think we got a really good picture of the challenge here, you know, under the broad umbrella of codependency, which, uh, you know, for our purpose today, let's say it means, you know, we're losing ourselves as we're compulsively uh, feel pushed to take care of others and put others a ahead of us. I think what we're talking about today, of course, is love. And ironically, in this case, um, our our misuse, our unskillful use of love uh, is the challenge that we face. Um, and also, I believe the solution is contained within it. The problem contains the solution. So I want to talk a minute about our Unity 12 powers again, because, of course, love is one of them. So Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore defined 12 skills or attributes that we all have, and he called these attributes, quote, the 12 powers. And each of them can function as a spiritual tool that we can use to change our lives for the better. And the power that can help us with codependence is learning a different way to understand and use love, and that is what we're here to focus on today. So, Lonnie, how can we use the spiritual power of love to balance our misguided or unskillful use of love? Well, I think the very first thing is to um, understand how we currently define love. And for me, an awful lot of it starts with um, 
recognizing my thought patterns and and my belief systems. For example, how am I showing up in the world? Am I um, what am I doing in the name of love? What am I doing that um, I think is love? And you know, there are all kinds of stories around that. Uh, funny ones are are when you show up with flowers and then find out somebody doesn't like flowers. Mm. You know, because it's according to our definition of love that we interact. And so, you know, I had to learn about some of my belief systems. For example, that um, I have to have a mate to be worthy. I didn't know I thought that. Or this relationship to be a successful relationship needs to look like this. You know, you behave this way, I behave that way. Um, or if you if you hurt me, if I become hurt in this relationship, you don't love me. You know, I was unaware that I had those kind of thought patterns going on. And so, the first thing I think to to learn to use love differently is to understand where am I at this moment? What how how does this show up for me? Yeah. So I, what I'm hearing there is that, like so many things for us, Donna our spiritual growth path, on our recovery path, which is a spiritual growth path, um, awareness uh, feels like it's step one. And we see that even in our 12-step our program. We must become aware of our addiction and how it's running our life before anything else can happen. And so this power of love that we have when we talk about you know what it is, and then uh, in the second half we'll get to exactly how can we use it to come into more balance emotionally and to uh, move out of that codependent way of being. Um, this power of love can show up in a lot of different ways, but first and foremost we have to be aware of how, you know how are we conceiving of it now, you know what is it mean to us there there are lots of different definitions of it including you know from the bible and and from unity literature and uh from our you know popular culture and media and all kinds of stuff yeah you know um one of the things that that for me uh really opened my eyes was whenever i got into a, a recovery program that specifically addressed codependency. And I'm, I'm going to read a quote from it. It says, many of us have confused love with interference. We don't know how to show affection or support without giving advice, seeking to sway another's decisions, or trying to get those we love to do what we think will bring them happiness. We confuse caring with controlling because we don't know how to allow others the dignity of being themselves. I mean, wow, that gave me a whole lot of information. Um, you know, and I and I understood at that point, okay, I don't know what love is. You know, I, I know I have this emotion, I have this feeling, I have this need for connection, but I don't know how to define love. And so it's really been a journey from that point. Yeah, and I can see how that if, if I define myself, my okayness, my personal okayness in terms of someone else's situation, that the you know what I'm going to do there is then try to change them so that I can feel okay. Because if I'm seeing them as the source of whether I'm okay in the world or not, then the, the obvious solution is, well, if they would just be like this or if they would stop doing that or start doing this, then I could be okay. And hence that uh, controlling that you were just um, talking about there from the uh, recovery literature for Al-Anon. And so, you know, somebody summed it up for me like this. They said, if somebody else has to change for you to be okay, it's not love. <laughs> right. I like that. I you think know, that's a, that's a truth. 
And so you mentioned the Bible, you know, which is you, you go to weddings and you always hear this passage. It's from Corinthians. And it told me what love is and what love is not. It says love is patient and love is kind. And so two tests, am I patient, am I kind? Mm-hmm. Um, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant. Do I behave that way? Or rude, you know? It does not insist on its own way. Well, if I'm controlling, guess what I'm doing? That's powerful. Is it not? It's not irritable or resentful. Well, we know when we come into recovery, we're full of resentments. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And then it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And, you know, we can interpret all that all day long. But just those first few sentences about what it's not and what it is gave me a lot of guidance on, gee, where is my behavior not line up with that? Yeah, and I, and I can see uh, one reason that perhaps this particular passage is so timeless and still so alive in our cultures because it it very succinctly gets at some deep truths about exactly what we're talking about, about what love is and what isn't. And that powerful statement you just made that says, you know, if, if someone else needs to change in order for me to be okay, then it's not love. I see that reflected here in this passage from Corinthians that's so popular, like you said, in in weddings. It's true what it's saying. And so I learned some other things. You know, I, I used to say in meetings when the topic was love, I would say, well, I don't know what love is, but I know what it's not. I spent a long time defining what it is not. Um, love is not pity. If somebody's feeling sorry for me and, and takes me under their wing, that's not love. You know, that's when we're viewing somebody as, as less fortunate than us, that's being judgmental and it's an ego trip. Yeah. You know, and so that's not love. Um, you know, and, and another ego trip is self-righteousness. What what presumes that I know a better way for you to run your life? You know, maybe I have an experience that came out differently for me and that I think might work for you, but that's where sharing only experience, strength, and hope comes in my into play. If I don't have experience with it, I have no business sharing it. And love is never fear-based. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if I am staying with somebody because I might lose my housing, that's not love. Right. You know, and I'm I'm tell you what, I hear those kind of stories all the time. Why don't you leave him? He he's, you know, creating violence in the in this family and well, because I I wouldn't have any place to go. You know, and Yeah, and so that's we, a trap. That's not love. That's a that's a a trap, an emotional trap. Absolutely. And so, you know, for me I arrived at a very succinct thing is that it's not love if somebody else has to change and it needs to express affection um, in a way that I understand it that works for me. Right. And things like harmony or attraction, again, looking back to the passage in Corinthians. And I can see how looking at what love is not could be very helpful along the way for us. So, what I did conclude is that love doesn't have to have a reason, but it just is. And so, we're going to stop at this point because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'll open the phone lines for callers and we'll continue our conversation. So, the number is 816-251-3555. And please stay with us.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Great teachers through the ages have spoken of the importance of our mind and of being master over our thoughts. How often do we forget that we are the ones who decide what thoughts we'll hold and what thoughts we'll reject? The world's great teachers also remind us that our thoughts create our experience. We may not be able to change what is happening in our world, but we can always choose how we will respond to the changing situations of our lives. With a positive attitude, your chance for success in any situation can be greater. That's because a positive attitude will inspire you to look for workable solutions rather than allowing negative thinking to limit your decision-making. This law of life is brought to you by Unity. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Daily Word has developed beautiful card decks to support your spiritual journey. One deck is about healing, Another is about finding peace in troubled times. And the family cards are two decks, one for parents and one that can be colored on for children. So families can talk about spiritual principles together. The card decks are available from Unity. Go to unity.org, then click on Shop or call 1-800-24-UNITY Monday through Friday. Since 1924, Daily Word has offered inspiration and practical teachings through daily prayer messages to help people of all faiths live happy, healthy lives. The magazine includes two months of daily affirmations, messages, articles, and spiritual poetry to help you get inspired. Subscriptions are available for print editions in large type and Spanish, as well as the digital subscription package that includes the online magazine with audio, smartphone app, and daily email. Get your subscription today. Visit dailyword.com or unity.org. Get ready to stretch your thinking and question your beliefs. Tune into Metaphysical Romp with Rev. Paul Hasselbeck every Monday at 10 a.m. Central on Unity Online Radio. Paul, along with his co-hosts, Rev. Bill and Cher Holton, will challenge your thinking and inspire you to open your mind and look outside the box. Discover Unity's spiritual laws and take a deep dive into the world of metaphysics and apply life-changing concepts today. Tune in Mondays at 10 Central on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice and Rev. Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today, but if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, here with Reverend Dan Beckett. And we're going to resume our discussion in a moment, but first we want to let you know we're opening the lines for callers. So if you have a question or a comment to share, please give us a call at 
816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. And if you happen to be catching this as a download on a podcast, you can leave comments on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, as well. So prior to the break, we were discussing our old ideas about love and how our belief systems around love drive our behavior and sometimes trap us into losing ourselves in the name of love. Yeah, and it seems that the challenge is that because of some of the ways that we were enculturated around love, that we may understand love in ways that are no longer supportive or helpful in our lives. We may recognize some attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that we want to change, and of course, everyone's needs are different, but how can we apply this new perspective that we're talking about today to our lives? Then I'm remembering a story you shared with me uh, about Jesus that was particularly transformational for you. Can you share that story? Sure. You know, when I was first in recovery, I, uh, I started attending church the same weekend I got sober because I thought, I need all the help I can get. <laughs> and so, you know, I was I was um, headfirst into all of these books and everything, and I was reading a book called Learning to Serve, and I did not understand why. It was story after story after story about how Jesus helped people, and I was always out there helping people, as we had talked about previously, uh, helping people improve their lives. And so, why was it that when Jesus helps somebody, it's called love. But when I helped somebody, it was called codependent. That is a great question. You know, I, I spent a long time, and I mean years, getting this sorted out. Um, you know, and, and I kind of to bring you along the journey, one thing that I um, either was told or recognized after a while is, well, what are the motives? You know, what, did, what motive did Jesus have? Well, I don't have a way of knowing that, but when I started looking at my own motives, I started realizing that I had things um, going on with me like, um, I do this because I say I love you, but really I want you to do what is I think is best for you. And so I'm manipulating you to try to, to get you to do something that keeps me comfortable, makes me feel comfortable because now it eases my mind. Oh, good. They're on the right path now. Yes. It, you know, uh, or maybe if if your behavior, you being generically whomever I'm in relationship with, um, scares me the way you drive or the way the way that you um, are reckless or or what have you, then perhaps I try to instead of taking care of myself and getting out of the car, for example, I try to tell you how to do your job behind the wheel. You know, and and that doesn't function either. My have my motive is to take care of me, but yet I'm trying to get you to do that and so when i you know so i tried i tried to do that and that probably was not a motive that jesus had (laughs) probably not he wasn't a backseat driver right right you know and and a lot of times it was fear fear of abandonment fear of being alone fear of being alone with my own thoughts um or that i wanted something from somebody you know i was doing this behavior whatever it was because i wanted attention or I thought you could keep me safe, or I wanted affection, or I was afraid of losing um, your esteem, you know, and so I learned how to be who you wanted me to be instead of, or who I thought you wanted me to be instead of being true to myself, you know, and and so as I was thinking about it, that's, you know, that separates me from any of Jesus' uh, comparisons right away. (laughs) I didn't know what what his motives were, but I could see that mine were not about love. 
Mine were not about being there for somebody else, and mine were not about supporting them in the way that best served them. Mine were all about supporting me. And so then in discussion with my my sponsor and others, I was encouraged to look at my belief system underneath that. And we've already talked about some of that, about um, how if I believe that um, if if somebody hurts me, they don't love me, uh, or if I please you in whatever way, people-pleasing, that you will love me, or if I share who I am, you won't like me. Um, you know, there are so many ways that this showed up for me that I realized that these belief systems I didn't even know I had that were under the motives that I didn't know I had were driving my behavior, my codependent behavior, and that is what separated me when I when I say what's the difference between love and codependency? What's the difference between when Jesus did it and I did it? It was I'm doing it out of neediness. I need something. I want something. Yeah. And, and any story I read about Jesus did not say he was in it for himself. Yeah, I, I've never seen Jesus as codependent. Definitely not needy. And uh, as you're saying, codependence is needy, and that's not what love is. I'm reminded as you talk about. Uh, how when I came into uh, recovery, and, and I think when we all come into recovery, we, of course, are learning new a new way of being on many levels. And so I think inherent in that, it gives us an opportunity to examine some of these things that you're talking about, some of these things that may not uh, be working for us, asking ourselves questions like, what is my motive in this? You know, am I really doing this um, out of uh, love for someone else, or am I doing this because I want a certain response out of them? And so this, this path of discovery that our recovery program and our recovery path is. Uh, I found it's opening doors to new ways of being, and I can see how that right there is an opportunity. Because as we talk about, you know, how do I use the power of love in a skillful and, and helpful and healthy way? How do I use the power of love to um, move out of codependence, to move into uh, more healthy expressions of love? I can see that those uh, questions come up, the opportunities present themselves, those doors open, if you will, this kind of naturally in recovery. There are so many ways that we could go about that. It's almost as if we'd have to uh, decide which one's, you know, which one's best, which one's easiest, which one makes sense. So can you share with us um, a simple particular thing that you had done that you found effective in helping you make that shift? probably not one thing <laughs> as we've talked before yeah it, so many little seems, things yeah there are a lot, of, a lot of little things and each of these skills rely on learning other skills along with them um you know for example the first thing i heard you say how do we do this how do we do this how do we do this and for me that's a trigger word how always takes me back to how do I do this? The answer is how? Honest, open-minded, and willing. Yes. You know, and the first thing I have to do is become honest about where am I? You know, what's going on with me? Uh, and what am I, how am I feeling? What am I thinking? What are my motives? What's my behavior? What are my belief systems? I have to, for me, understand, not understand, I have to get honest about the way I'm showing up and where this stuff's coming from. 
because it's often it's not pretty um, and it's certainly not comfortable. But that for me is is one of the first pieces. And the second thing is I have to be open minded. I have to be um, I have to be available to a new idea. I cannot be stuck on the idea that my way is the only way. Uh, and when I'm in a in a controlling mode over controlling because of fear i'm not open-minded you know i'm hanging on to this old idea that i can take care of myself and and thank you very much go take your idea someplace else and so open-minded is also a critical component and then the last of course is willing which is what we talk about a lot we have to get into action we have to be willing to take action to do something different than what we have always done Uh, and that and that so from that point there's a number of different ways that it can branch out yeah, I love that acronym as well, and I and I agree that whenever we're asking ourselves how, you know, what is the path, um, I've heard it said, and I know that it's true that, quote, you know, how is none of my business, that's up to God, but what can I do to create the conditions for God to be God in me, for God to do the how part for God? And I think that that acronym spells it out so clearly and effectively. Uh, I've always seen that as almost, uh, you know, the whole, the whole recovery program compressed into uh, three letters and three concepts that really get at the core of what we're doing. And again, like you say, you know, being aware, awareness, being honest, being uh, open to change and being willing to change. That is how we plant the seeds, so to speak, in the garden that then the plants and flowers will grow from. Nothing's going to grow if we don't tend the garden, um, but nothing's going to grow if we dig up the seeds every day to see if they're doing anything either. So I, I, I see how and have experienced how it's a seemingly subtle and slow shift over time. It's not like, um, you know, learning how to type or ride a bike where it's, you know, v- very clear, clearly defined, c- clearly defined steps. But this concept of creating the conditions for change, I, I think that's exactly how love can work in our lives. You know, Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore defines love this way. He says, it's the pure essence of being that binds together the whole human family, the power that joins and binds in divine harmony the universe and everything in it, the great harmonizing principle known to humanity. And to me, to simplify all of that, love is the glue that holds the universe together. Yes. You know, and and we have access to this power because it is a part of what, you know, it's within us. We are born with it, and we have access to this. And like the other powers, ours is to choose how we're going to use that, how we're going to use this power. If we're going to use it in unhelpful manners, as we've talked about already, or if we're going to consciously make choices about um, using it in more supportive manners. Absolutely, and and I'm I'm recalling one way that has been very helpful to me on on my recovery path is that that saying that we hear in in um, in our meetings, you know, our twelve step recovery group meetings, that we will love you until you can love yourself. You know, I didn't even know what that meant the first time I heard it, but honestly, I put that on a long list of things that I didn't understand what they meant, you know, when I first got sober and first came into recovery. But what I have found, the truth I have found under that is, again, simply just by making the decision to show up, you know, on a regular basis and be a part of a community, we are then, you know, in a group with people who have been down this path 
before us that we can in many subtle ways just pick things up from just see you know the, the way that they talk about things the way that they describe relationships can all serve as a model for us for me um, of a new way of being i know uh, one example always sticks out in my mind um, i had a dear friend in in a recovery home group who at one point sort of admitted and stated, um, you know, I, I'm not the one that knows how everything could be. Who made me the teacher? And I thought, that is a great statement. Who made me the teacher? It helped me to begin to tell the difference between what is my responsibility to change and what is not my responsibility to change. And if it's something in someone else who made me the teacher, it's probably not my responsibility to try to change something about somebody else. But I picked this up at a meeting. And so I think just showing up and seeing that statement that we will love you until you can love yourself, to see that become true right in front of us, that's one way. That's one, how, how can we do this? How can we go about creating the conditions? Show up at meetings and listen. And, you know, some of these behaviors are so ingrained that um, – you know, I've, I've worked on them for a long time. They're still a tendency because, you know, they're they're deeply rooted. And one funny story came out of a, a meeting. I was sitting next to my sponsor, and, and it was in one of the um, codependency support groups. And so we were talking about something, and I was going on and on about this situation in my life, and it was one of my sister's kids, and I mean, things were going bad and it was you know going from bad to worse and should i do this or should i do that or do something else and she asked me one simple question did they ask <laughs> well they're not smart enough to ask so i need to do it for them anyway <laughs> yeah i had all the answers but yeah but he had asked and, <laughs> i love that so in fact i had that engraved on a bracelet that i wore for years it was my reminder because that's part of me discerning what is mine to do about this. Well, the first step is, did they ask? <laughs> you know, and most of the time the answer is no. That, that's reminding me of, of something super helpful that a sponsor of mine would do on a regular basis. Um, if I were uh, speaking with him and talking about some trouble or situation or a concern, something that was bothering me, um, he would never tell me what to do or make a suggestion or try and fix it at all. But what he would say is, do you want a suggestion? And I can say yes, or I can say no, because I might not be ready for a suggestion. I might not want to hear a solution. I might still you know, not be ready to ste step out of that mud puddle. I might be enjoying myself in there, but it's a very respectful way to um, – Give me the opportunity to be, you know, open and willing if I'm in a place for that. And and that's radically different than if he were to just start telling me the suggestion without that. I found that a, a very simple way for him to clearly express a boundary, for him to practice not being codependent, but still be willing to be there and to be helpful um, if I'm open to help. You know, and I think that's a great example of modeling. You know, we we don't 
encounter those kind of experiences, um, at least I don't, just out in the real world, near as much as I do inside the halls where somebody's working on their stuff, you know, and then I I, I think that mentoring or uh, modeling, uh, sponsorship, um, spiritual direction, all kinds of things are very, very helpful in not walking this path alone to understand what is a better way. It may be incremental or it may be hugely different but where do these new ideas come from about how we handle ourselves in the world and how we we work around this this um this principle for for me uh they come from the people who've been down this path ahead of me that's one of the most beautiful things about uh, any 12-step recovery group is that you know our literature dates back to the 30s and we have had continuous groups uh, in recovery um, all along that time you know each person who participates um, not only being healed but being a healing presence for others at the very same time just by our presence uh, my home group uh, up till recently was uh, founded in 1945 and i always felt really good about about that because for me what it meant is that we in this moment at my home group are, are literally standing on the shoulders of giants you know we are learning from those who have come before us whether those people are physically actually in the room at that moment or not i I can't count the number of times that i've heard somebody share some profound wisdom that they learned from a a program member who had who had passed on who had passed away that person's not even walking the earth anymore but what they said is healing me because it comes to me through someone else so when we say and we hear often keep coming back um that that is not an, an an idle statement. I think there's tremendous power. Keep coming back so that you can let this unfold and and see more and more layers of it. You know, keep coming back is another way of saying don't quit before the miracle. Well, another aspect of that keep coming back is when we are the ones saying it to somebody else. We are practicing the love and tolerance because. Um, we have been called unlovely creatures when we first <laughs> crawl in the door. You know, um, somebody that is uh, just recently out of active addiction is usually not well put together, not overly articulate, usually fairly emotional, you know, not in well control of their emotions. Um, their life is unmanageable or in shambles or all of the above. And, you know, they're not usually somebody that you'd go sit beside and say, hey, you want to be my best friend, you know? And so, you know, to invite somebody to come back into this this fellowship or the same thing with the spiritual community, to invite somebody to come into church, to to experience the healing of community, uh, to walk together through this this process uh, is, I think, a form of practicing love. I'm seeing that. I'm I'm, I'm really feeling that theme as we talk about and attempt to answer the question, how can I heal my own life? How can I move out of that unhealthy codependent 
type of behavior into a more uh, emotionally balanced behavior. How can we learn it? By showing up and being in community with others who are learning it, who have learned aspects of it that we can learn from. It's almost like you could not write down the steps unless the steps are show up at meetings and work the steps. You know, those would be the steps to um, shifting from codependence to uh, a more healthy way of being is to just be a part of this wonderful movement of folks, you know, working each day to live a spirit-centered life and to apply these principles, just like my sponsor did by asking, would you like a suggestion, um, is a great example of someone living a principle that we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, and I know that there are people um, that choose to attend meetings and choose not to work steps for a variety of reasons, and yet they are healed because they are healed by the opportunity to share who they are in a place of non-judgment where people don't critique them, don't try to control what they're saying, uh, don't don't feel like there's judgment or that they have to have secrets around things where they can just be who they really are even if they don't know who they are. You know, I've, I've sat in meetings for years with people that um, after a while, several months, couple of years, whatever, they say this has been such a healing experience for me. And they might not have said two words in six meetings, you know, but they are sitting in the presence of people holding space for the healing to occur. And we talk about the language of the heart. The words sometimes don't even matter as much as the sense we get from one another from those words that we're being heard. Absolutely. That, that, that's a beautiful statement of the power of community. And I'm reminded of, of an experience I had very early in recovery. And I know that I was, and I've talked to others who are super sensitive early in recovery. Like you shared previously, I think, um, you know, I was afraid that I wouldn't know anybody. Oh, and then I'm also afraid that I might know somebody. I walked into the first meeting that I had gone to, uh, what was going to become my my home group in my first year of sobriety. Um, I had come out of uh, rehab. I had made a commitment to myself to follow the advice I was given that said, you know, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. Okay, I can do that. I walk into the meeting and I immediately see a woman that I know from around the community. I had no idea that she was a 12-step program member. And she looked at me and said, oh, and she gives me a hug. I didn't know you were one of us. And I, my answer was, neither did I, <laughs> very recently. And so uh, I was uneasy and almost embarrassed, and I didn't quite know how to be in that situation at that moment when it was happening. But it didn't take long for me to realize and to really feel that what a wonderful introduction to a to a 12-step home group. What a wonderful introduction then to realize, oh, I'm not alone in this. Not only that, here's a person that I know who is involved in this and had been for 20-plus years Um who has walked this path ahead of me? This is okay. This is okay for me to be here. I can be comfortable. And so we're even immersed in love and don't know it. But one of the first things for me that I have to do to, to understand the process within me is to become aware. 
you know, how, how am I showing up? How am I using this? And the way that I can find out if I don't know is it's a, as a simple question is, how's it working for me? How are my relationships? What, what are they like? Are they contentious? Are they hurtful? Um, you know, are they spiteful? Are they sarcastic? You know, all of those are ways in which I had to become attuned to how I was coming across and then find out what's going on underneath it. Absolutely. And and I'm wondering, you know, uh, we will often in Unity use some practical tools, uh, especially the tools of denial and affirmation. And so maybe we could share a simple practical tool, a denial and affirmation that might help uh, both us, of course, and then anyone who's hearing this who is looking for practical steps. What can I do today? What can I do this week? For me, those break down like this. Number one is I have to catch the thought. The emotion comes up and I have to go, well, what am I thinking? If I'm feeling ignored, for example, I have to recognize that I'm feeling ignored. And then the denial for me is that I have to set that aside that they're fine doing whatever they're doing. But what do I need to – that's not about me. What is about me? This situation with them has no power over me. It's not the truth of my being. I have to remind myself of that, and that's my denial. And then for an affirmation, I have to claim my truth. What do I need to do for me? And so the truth that I claim is that I'm a beloved child of God. I'm well taken care of. There is much love in my life, and I am I am not ignored. You know, I am not without. Um, and and I I had to I had a situation like this. I had to do that for two years before it kind of broke the spell for me. That sounds like a great practical tool. Thank you for sharing it. And we have come to the end of our time together here, and we hope you have found something to help you on your recovery journey, and we both bless you on your way. Thank you to all the listeners and callers, and thank you, Lonnie, for your insights shared in our discussion today. And if you'd like, please connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, to give your thoughts and feedback, and we invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. And until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.